Will Gallison joins me on episode 38. Will first picked up the chromatic harmonica when studying at the Berklee College of Music. He quickly realised he had an affinity with the instrument, and after spending a day with Toots Thielmans, he knew the chromatic harmonica was what he wanted to do. Will went on to record numerous albums under his own name, including successful collaboration with Madeline Peru. He has been an in-demand session player for many years, with credits performing with the likes of Barbara Streisand, Carly Simon and Donald Fagan. On top of all this, he has recorded a version of the Sesame Street theme tune used on the TV show. With interests ranging from jazz to pop and classical, as well as playing some mean diatonic, Will is the all-round harmonica player. and welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello. Thank you very much for having me. You are a native New Yorker, or you are, uh, at least you live in New York. Yeah, very native. Uh, fourth generation, you could say. But at the moment, you're in Costa Rica, is that right? Yes, I am. And any story behind that? Well, yeah, there's a long story. I'll give you the short version. I came down last March to do some research about some something, and um, I was just here for about a week or 10 days, but I, during that time is when COVID hit New York very badly. I was with my girlfriend and we decided to stay for a few weeks to see if things got better. They didn't. They got worse. So I uh, stayed in a, a eco-community for about five months, a place called Pachamama. Very interesting place and we played a lot of music there. Then I've been, I've been staying in a town called Nosara for the last six or seven months, enjoying it very much. I've, I'm going to go back to New York very soon because things are getting better and I'll get vaccinated when I get there. So music-wise, uh, you said that you're able to get into the, in the music scene there. What's, what's, what sort of music they're playing in Costa Rica? Well, this was, a, a, I guess you could say, a village or an eco-community, they call it, with not so many Costa Ricans. It was a lot of Israelis, Germans, Americans, Brits. And they were just doing projects. They had a, a broadcast that they did uh, There's a, and a network of uh, related communities. We rehearsed and did a show for that, which was fun. And I did a couple of shows on my own of my own music. I mean, there's no gigging because like everywhere else in the world, restaurants and cafes and venues are limiting capacity. But I found people to play with and uh, managed to keep my foot in it. So back to your uh, your, your early life, you um, you started off, I think, playing the piano when you were a youngster. That's right, about seven years old. Not very willingly, I might say, but I did enjoy it. Yeah, I think I, that helped to develop my ear because I, being very ADD, I wasn't particularly good at reading music and I would fake it by just playing back what I heard, uh, which went into some fairly uh, complicated Mozart stuff, you know, not beginner stuff. I, I was no prodigy. I was and doing everything by ear. Despite my reluctance to practice, I, so, I somehow uh, made it through. And, and then when I was about nine years old, I became aware of the Beatles and the Monkees and all that stuff. And I thought, why would anybody want to play the piano? Yeah, the guitar is the way to go. So then I started playing guitar around that age. Yeah, and of course, and you still play guitar now, as you mentioned. I do, yeah. I, I still study. It's a terribly difficult <laughs> instrument. Non-intuitive, you might say, I find, insofar as there's five different ways to play a middle C on it, you know, five different places on the, yeah. on the neck. So every phrase you play, 
you have to make a decision as to how you're going to finger that phrase because there's a dozen different ways of doing it. I also have I have trouble visualizing it in the same way that I would visualize a keyboard, for example. And when I play harmonica, I do picture a piano keyboard. The piano and the harmonica for me have the same geography. Yeah, a lot of people make that comparison, that that linear uh, layout of them, very similar. Do you play any piano at all now? I have a nice piano at home. I use it for composing. find it gives me more possibilities than guitar when I'm writing songs. You know, I write small pieces, jazz-type things, um, and uh, I use the piano for that. It's always good for me to return to the piano just to, again to reinforce that map, which is what I see in my mind when I play the harmonica. Actually, this year, um, I've started getting back into uh, saxophone, which I played in my 20s and 30s, and then I dropped it for some reason. And just before I went to Costa Rica, thinking I was going to come back in about 10 days, I picked up the soprano, which I had, again, just played for a few years. I really enjoy that. It's kind of the same register as the harmonica. I must say, it's a much easier instrument than the harmonica is. I became It really made me appreciate how difficult the harmonica is in terms of phrasing and just agility. You can learn something on the, I can at least, learn something on the saxophone in a few hours that it would take me a week to learn on the harmonica. In saxophone, you're just, they like to say you're wiggling your fingers. You have to adjust your embouchure. But I think my experience with the harmonica has given me a lot of sensitivity in, in terms of mouth position, etc. So I think the embouchure comes fairly naturally to me. But to play something on harmonica, you have to move the horn. You have to breathe in or breathe out. You have to have the button in or out. And those are three factors. The devil in playing the harmonica is being able to play phrases legato uh, when it's a physical impossibility to play a legato phrase when you're blowing in and out because the air has to stop at one point in order to change direction. So do you make that comparison to the chromatic harmonica specifically rather than the diatonic? Because of course you do play both. Yeah. No, I was thinking more of the chromatic harmonica. When yeah. I play the diatonic harmonica, in fact, I always think of the harmonica that I'm playing on as being in the key of C, which I think is pretty typical. Um, mm-hmm. So I imagine it as a kind of slightly altered map the same way as I play the chromatic harmonica when i do overblows and bends you have to superimpose that map onto the onto the general map but i but in a certain sense i'm always playing in in the same few keys you know whether it's first position second position third position 12th position whatever you might do on the diatonic even if i'm playing a b flat or an a flat harmonica i imagine i'm in the key of c otherwise it would be too complicated because i'd need 12 maps if you understand me yeah I assume not many musicians. I don't know how Howard Levy pictures when he plays, but probably in the same way. He probably imagines that he's playing on a C instrument because it's overwhelming otherwise. Yeah, and of course he's he's a. Well, I've had him on the podcast. Of course, he's a piano player too. It's an interesting comparison, isn't it? As like you say, that that fluidity on the chromatic harmonica. I mean, I play both myself. The fluidity is a lot easier on the diatonic than the chromatic. But I think the chromatic is your main harmonica of choice, isn't it? Instrument wise, it's what I'm known for. I'd say I'm a better chromatic player than I am a diatonic. Player, although I like playing the diatonic a lot, but the fluidity is is there if you play in certain keys, and uh, you know if you're trying to play an F sharp on a C harp, it's not going to be fluid at all. In my my experience, it's not going to be fluid at all. Uh, you have to really manipulate every note, and your intonation's funny, and your phrasing's funny. And but yeah, if you're playing in second position on a on a diatonic, you can fly along in in certain phrases. You started on the diatonic, didn't you? I think when you were younger. 
Yeah, I did. Never got deeply into it. I found it fun that for some reason I hadn't, as many people do, I had an intuitive sense of where the notes were and so I could play melodies and that kind of struck me as magical. I had no idea what notes I was playing. I wasn't thinking of the piano at that time, but just playing folk tunes and blues things. And it was when I was 17, I went to Berklee College of Music for guitar. I did want to play the saxophone at that time, but I, I couldn't afford one. So I walked into a music store and I saw a chromatic harmonica for the first time in my life. It was a 260. Uh, you know, in other words, a 10-hole honer. And believe it or not, it was about $15 to buy at that yeah. time. That's how old I am, 1975, seven, you know, so I thought, okay, this I can afford. And, and I was really thrilled by the idea that as far as I knew, nobody else in the world was playing this thing. And I was learning the jazz theory on guitar, which I was finding very challenging on guitar for the reasons I, I said before. And here was a little wind instrument which is what I wanted to play, which had a more logical layout to me than the guitar did. Guitar is perfectly logical. It's just more complicated. It was then that I was starting to play chromatic and the people at Berkeley said, oh, you must love Toots Tillman. And I, I said, Toots who? You know, I had no idea. Then I bought some albums at that time. There weren't CDs yet of Toots and I was blown away. And I immediately said, okay, I'm going to do that because it was just so cool that somebody could be playing with people like Joe Pass and Oscar Peterson and, well, later Jacob Astorius and... Part of the appeal, I must say, was that as far as I knew, there was Toots and there was Stevie, and but that was the universe that I knew at that time. And of course, there was no internet, so I, I didn't have access to other people. And I just started applying the guitar theory that I was learning on guitar to the harmonica. Weirdly enough, within about two months of playing, a piano player asked me if I would play with him at a at a gig, uh, a weekly gig. So, I was, but I think I got five or ten bucks an evening. But that was, it was a thrill to me. I was playing. I, I knew a handful of tunes, and I've always had a good ear, so I was able to translate. You know, pretty much play melodies. You know, but of course, I had to, like everybody else, learn learn the different keys, and you know, that's that's how it started for me. So, do you think that's what drew you to the chromatic? Then is that uh, that love of melodies, which uh, you know, sort of come easier on the chromatic than than the diatonic? Oh, yeah. No, I, I was into jazz at that time. And I, I had no idea that there was a creature such as Howard Levy or anybody else who played jazz on a diatonic. Yeah, chromatic was what I knew at that point. I didn't really touch the diatonic for quite a while after that. You met Toots Tillmans when you were quite young, didn't you, in New York? Yeah, I did. But around that time, I, I forgot exactly how I got the introduction. I think it was through a guitarist named Wayne Wright. I told him I was playing harmonica, and he said, oh, you should meet Toots. I said, you know Toots? Sure. <laughs> it was one of the most thrilling days of my life, actually. I was about 17, maybe 18. I walked with Toots as he played sessions along Broadway. There were about four or five studios between 59th Street and 34th Street, and he, I think he did six, five or six sessions that day. He even played diatonic on one session, and I and I thought to myself, he's not very good at diatonic. But the, all the other things he aced, he was not a ferocious reader either. I, I think you know, I came away feeling that he really did this mostly by feel. I mean, he was obviously a very intellectual musician and, and knew his theory, but I think he was more likely to improvise and and you know play something around the melody than than read strictly from the paper. I was just so, I mean, that just made me swoon, you know, the idea of playing that kind of sessions day after day. I don't know if he did that every day or every week, but there were five sessions. He was pulling in a lot of money and making great music. Anyway, I, as a young kid, I was really intrigued and really impressed, and it, it strengthened the, the idea that that's what I wanted to do. 
said some good things about you, nice things. He said you were the most uh, original and individual of a new generation of harmonica players. Was that a little bit later then? Did he did he sort of keep in touch with him? And oh yes, yeah, we stayed in touch until pretty much until he died. I went to his funeral in, in Brussels. I must say I'm I'm delighted about that quote, and it stood me in good stead for many years. You know, I mean, I'm no longer the new generation of harmonica players. I'm becoming the old generation of harmonica players. I think there were some other very good harmonica players around, but I think that many of them were trying to imitate the sound of Toots and you know, the phrasing because he was the, the one guy going. I was just as interested in Stevie Wonder as I was in Toots as far as sound and approach. It's funny, you know, I'm an American kid growing up in New York City in the 60s and 70s. My musical mind was formulated by listening to the radio. And then I had a friend, I should mention, um, still a great friend of mine at 83 years old, a clarinetist, and he played jazz. He used to take me at the age of 11 or 12. He was a shop teacher at my high school, but he was a, a wonderful, he still is, a wonderful jazz clarinetist, completely an ear player. But he had studied with Benny Goodman a little bit and got a beautiful sound. And he used to take me down to Greenwich Village when I was 11 or 12 to these bars where I probably shouldn't have been allowed in. He would be playing with these wonderful, you know, veteran jazz musicians who had probably played with Ellington and Basie and all the other greats, you know. And I got a bit of an education that way, mostly just listening and, and getting into my head. So he's always been a big in influence. His name is Brad Terry. Yeah, so so jazz was, you know, what I was focused on, but I loved Somehow I found this record called Ivet's Red Now, which is the, you probably know it, it's the Stevie Wonder record, which yeah. he made when he was 18, which he plays just chromatic harmonica. I think he also plays drums and keys on the, key, on the album. Yeah, that record had a huge effect on me. He played the song Alfie. Uh, the Burt Bacharach song, which is one of the most beautiful melodies, I think, in pop music. He just played it so beautifully, so soulfully. And the, to me, the harmonica sounded like a cross between a violin and a soprano sax when he played that. I recommend it totally to anybody playing harmonica. It's, it's his name, Stevie Wonder, spelled backwards. So Ivitz is Stevie and Red Now is Wonder. But it's definitely worth listening to, to see how gorgeous the harmonica can sound in the right hands. And then getting on to your own recording career, so was it your first solo album, Overjoyed, which is a Stevie Wonder song? Yeah. So uh, obviously showing your influence of Stevie Wonder there with that early album from you. I adore Stevie Wonder. Maybe 20 years later, I think his bass player, Nathan East, made a, an album with Overjoyed and Stevie played harmonica on it. It's a wonderful song for harmonica in the original key, E-flat, and it was a good idea for me to play it. I just loved the song. That record was very slickly produced. The real, you know, I realize now what great musicians I had on that album. Legendary studio musicians, but also performing musicians from that era. A guy from Japan had seen me play and he liked my playing. So it was on Verve, but through Polydor in Japan. And that song Overjoyed, you did, uh, you won some Apollo night, um, didn't you? Some, I think 2012 with that okay, song. Yeah, that was much way, way after. In fact, I didn't play any of those songs for a long time. When I finished that record, I really didn't like it. I was I was very upset with the arrangements. I thought they were corny and old-fashioned, and, and I didn't listen to it for about two or three years. And I, I, I made another album, 
which I also didn't like. This is my character, but because I'm a perfectionist in a way. But it's interesting, you know. Sometimes you look back at the work you did many years ago, and you say, "Hey, that wasn't so bad." I, you know, I was onto something at that time. So I listen to that record now, and I appreciate my playing, but I also really appreciate the other musicians and the arrangements. I don't think that make record made a huge splash. Maybe it sold twenty thousand copies, but occasionally somebody writes me a letter and says, "You know, I used to have that album and I loved it so much." And and before that, was it before that you recorded the Baghdad Cafe, which is a, a film soundtrack? Yeah, that was a couple of years before that. I was in my twenties. I mean, it was one of my first. Re- recording sessions doing a movie, uh, although I may have done The Untouchables before that, but this it was a very humble experience, you know, in, in, in uh, Bob Telson as the composer, it was in his home studio, which was, you know, which was a respectable studio. And he played the whole thing on, an, uh, I think it was called an M1 Korg, which was sort of the, the go-to synthesizer at the time. And he played me the, the track and he said, this is for this little movie by a, a German uh, director and it's really nothing. I think he was, to some degree, trying to lower my expectations on how much I was going to be paid. Had I not been bought out, if I had gotten royalties from that, I would be very rich at the moment, or I would be fairly wealthy. Because that song became, a, as you probably know, a number one hit all around the world, except in the United States, really, called Calling You. And it, but it stood me in very good stead. You know, I was paid 150 bucks or whatever it was for the session. But I did recognize that it was a, an exceptional song, even though it was all done on one synthesizer with a singer. So, and then it was covered by Barbara Streisand. I played on her album. That was a thrilling experience. You know, I was in this enormous soundstage uh, where they had actually done the music for the film The Wizard of Oz. Love that movie. So there was this, you know, old fashion huge soundstage in uh, in Hollywood and there was a 90 piece orchestra you know so the the very opposite of it being played on one mediocre synthesizer this was played by a 90 piece orchestra with you know full orchestra and she was singing I made another record for Verve Polydor in around 1993 or 1994. Again, a lot of great musicians on it. It was called Calling You. And uh, there was a few good, really interesting tracks on that. Yeah, that was a more adventurous record than Overjoyed, which is more of a smooth jazz record. There's, you know, there's a few tunes that I'm quite proud of from that, from that second record. Jocko's Tune... I did one, uh, one of my own songs called New Samba. Yeah, there were nice arrangements. I did a version of Stevie Wonder's Lately, but I had a number of compositions on that record where uh, on the Overjoyed record, I only had one of my compositions, which is called As Close As We Can Get. Yeah, then I made other records over the years in less formal circumstances. I was playing with a a German jazz group, wonderful group, uh, which does... um, all, all kinds of international music, world music. The, the core of the group was a sax player, bass, accordion, and guitar, Midnight Sun.
And that was done very informally in Germany. And then I did a, a record called Love Letters with an Australian. I, I had a, four or five trips to uh, Australia where I sort of began to have a little bit of a name. And I was playing mostly with this singer who played jazz piano. And we would tour around Australia and play. That was a lot of fun. We made a record of mostly Cole Porter songs called Love Letters. And then probably onto your maybe your most well-known album with, uh, with Madeline Prue, Got You In My Mind. As far as I know... Somewhere around 300,000 copies have been sold of that, including, wow. you know, including uh, downloads and because now nobody buys CDs, but it, it, <laughs> it sold a lot. So get a check every year from it. Amazingly, you know, that record came to be because uh, I had met Madeline on the she was playing on the street in New York. And I just recognized that she was a great talent and I lost track of her for a couple of months. Then I saw her again playing at a little bar in, on Bleecker Street, and I brought my harmonica and guitar and, and accompanied her because she was just playing jazz standards, but with no soloist. So jazz standards are actually very, very brief if you don't have a solo somewhere in there, right? You know, uh, yeah. their, the tunes are about maybe a minute long. That was fun. She was playing guitar and singing, and I, I just thought, wow, this is somebody important. And I think it's, and I think it's something you know. You're talking a second about playing with a singer because it's something you've done a lot, and something a chromatic harmonica player does very well, doesn't it? So, what about playing with a singer like that? Well, that's a, a great question. I think that's very much maybe what I do best. You have to listen to the lyrics, you have to listen to the singer, you have to listen to the rhythm section, and find your way in there. It's almost like skiing down a you know a slalom trail where you have to avoid other skiers and ice patches and rocks and and you have to come in and and just play. Uh, a tasteful little line here and there. I love doing that, especially with a good singer. Yeah, I, I did. I've worked with some great singers. I, I've worked with uh, Carly Simon and. and Ruth Brown and Peggy Lee even. I played on a record of hers. I think it was her last album. And on the Got You On My Mind album again, you play a little bass harmonica, don't you, on Should Have Known? <laughs> yeah. Representing a frog, I think, isn't it? Which It does sound quite a lot like a frog, the bass harmonica. Man, don't believe that hype. Don't you fall for that tired old stereotype. You do me this favor and deliver me there. I will tell you secret only scorpion share when i was producing that song what happened with that record by the way is um it's a long story that maybe some of your listeners know i don't want to get into it now we made an, a seven song album madeline and i i wanted to make you know make it into a full album but at the time you could make a seven song cd and sell it for 10 bucks and we did at our at our gigs but it turned out that there was another agenda at play and that Madeline and her lawyer were intending on using that album produced by me as a demo for getting a big record contract with another company. They misrepresented to that company that Madeline was the owner, only owner of that record, which wasn't the case. We were co-owners of it. And so when I made motions that I wanted to put it out, you know, in official release and distribute it, things went very ugly, very fast. I was in court for quite a while defending my right to sell the record and to dispel rumors that I had done something wrong. I finally prevailed. In fact, I did better than prevail because Madeline, I guess she saw that she had done the wrong thing and she and she was she was beginning to have a, a very lucrative career herself and she gave me sole ownership. So now it, it belongs to me, which is nice.
Uh, yeah, but we did seven songs, and then when Madeline wasn't available to do, you know, make a full CD, I think one of the reasons that she did seven songs was that she and her lawyer figured I couldn't put out this as an as a commercial album with only seven songs. But if we had eleven, I could have. So I uh, surprised them by I think doing four pretty good tracks, which I added to the album, and um, and that became got you on my mind. Another really interesting thing you did, you did a uh, a campaign song for Barack Obama in, in 2008, taking it back with Barack, yeah. which is great. And there's a, there's a there's a YouTube video, which I'll put on the on the page of the podcast. Is, I think you co-wrote the lyrics as well. It's quite political. So, uh, yeah, how did you get involved with that? Yeah, I, I wrote the lyrics. I think I gave my nephew credit because he was about 10 years old and I, I thought it was a nice thing to do. But I, I was excited about Obama, as many people were at that time, and thoroughly disgusted with the war in Iraq and, and Bush. I've always been fairly politically minded. It was just one of those things, you know, there, it, it comes, as you may know, from a, uh, a Louis Jordan tune called Take Me Right Back to the Track, Jack. Mm -hmm. And somehow in my perverse mind, I twisted that to taking it back with Barack, Jack. And then I came up with a whole lot of rhymes for the sound ack, <laughs> which is what makes the song charming. Put it together, I got a, a, a wonderful band. That video is actually lip-synced, if you will, because we recorded it in studio to get a good sound, but it looks very authentic. And those are pretty much the guys that played on the, on the song, except for the bass player. But yeah, and then I was lucky to find this really professional, high-level videographer who um, was a Barack Obama fan too. And she, she did the session, took a few hours. And about a week later, I'm walking down the street after I put it up on YouTube and somebody says, hey, aren't you the taking it back with Barack guy? You know, which is pretty funny because I, and it ended up getting, you know, something like 800,000 hits, which is, you know, at that time was a lot of hits. Now things are getting a billion hits <laughs> yeah. or something. The biggest thrill about that is that my brother happened to be in touch with David Axelrod, who was the campaign manager, I believe, for Barack Obama. He's somebody you see on CNN a lot. Somehow my brother got a copy of an email from David Axelrod to either him or to a, a mutual friend where he said, oh yeah, uh, Barack got a real kick out of the song. And then I learned that Barack Obama's sister was using it, uh, projecting it on a big screen and using it at fundraisers in uh, Hawaii and other places. So I, I I like to think that I had a little bit of a part in getting him elected. Oh, definitely, yes. Well, it's a great song. It's really got a great feel about it, yeah. And uh, and then uh, I think he did a completely self-produced album in 2011, Line Open. You played harmonica guitar, you composed lyrics, and you sing. I think I'm, you're the only singer on the album, I think, are you? Well, every song is a vocal song, yes. I think I have harmonica, snuck harmonica in on every song. Maybe there's a couple that don't have it, either diatonic or chromatic. Um, I didn't want to make it a, a harmonica album, but it felt like that was something I could do and I could present myself with, and it would give me some uniqueness. A little bit the way Stevie Wonder you know, uses harmonicas in his songs. You know, They're not always a soloistic instrument, but they play a role. And I, I co-produced that with a, a guy named Steve Gabori, who's a uh, music director for Cindy Lauper, and somebody I had played music with many times. And it took a long, long time to make because Steve was always on tour with Cindy. 
so I could only work on it when he was back in town. But that was really my labor of love. The other albums, I produced the Got You On My Mind, and I was pleased with that. But that was done really only in a few days as well. Uh, this one, I really worked on, and I, you know, I made a lot of decisions and judgments, and Steve was super helpful. And I mean, I couldn't have done it without him. But it was, it was sort of my most personal album, I think. And the, I and I was just in a stage where I was writing songs. So actually, I'm quite proud of that record, I must say. Maybe most proud of that record of all my... And, uh, and then you, you're playing, as well as playing jazz and pop very well, you know, I think you do pop songs great. And, that, and that's what I really love to hear in Chromatic. I think a lot of people go down the line of playing jazz and classical, but pop works fantastically well, you know, of course, as Stevie Wonder's demonstrated. But you've done, you have done quite a, a bit of classical. And in, in 2019, you did this um, Odysseus Fantasy, which is with a French composer, which is a, a great, you know, I was massively impressed listening to that one. It's I, I, had, I had a girlfriend in France and uh, was going over there to play gigs. I, I, one day I was, we were in a cafe and some music was playing and I said, wow, what is that? It was featuring a soprano sax, in fact, and it had orchestrations with strings. It was so hip and so tasteful. You know, I don't consider myself a hardcore jazz player. You know, I'm, I'm not like yeah. a, a Coltrane acolyte or any, I mean, I, I love his stuff, but I never really went down that road of, of really being a you know, trying to be a virtuoso jazz player. Yeah, I think you've got to devote your life to it, and you know, just jazz if you're going to do that, haven't you? You do indeed, yeah. yeah. Which I love playing jazz, but anyway, I had, I had broader interests. So I, I was so impressed by this, and she said, oh, that was that's a composition by my friend Karim Maurice. So I said, wow, I'd love to meet him. Maybe he could write something for harmonica. So I did meet him and played with him a bit, and he really liked my playing. And we started working on this project. He wanted to do a whole suite of pieces illustrating various adventures of Odysseus in his the Homer epic. Um, and I love that idea. And I, I the first thing I did is listen to Ian McCullen narrating the entire, you know, I, every night I would listen for a couple of hours to the, to the Odyssey, which is a wonderful thing to do. Got really into it. And the first thing we did was a video of the first movement. I must say that I'm much more pleased with that video and, and the way I played on that than what happened with the album. You know, sometimes you go into the studio and you're nervous or you're tired or you're and you don't play as well as you want to. There's a very nice video, which was beautifully filmed, of me playing with the orchestra. And that performance, I stand behind. And, uh, and funny, because that was more of a spontaneous performance. But uh, I, ne I didn't feel like I really aced it in the studio. Then I brought it back to New York. I, I had the background tracks. And I spent two months re-recording <laughs> to my most perfectionist standards all the seven pieces in the suite. But by that point, they had already mixed the ones that, that I had recorded in France. I put the versions that I had done in New York, which I, you know, really felt where I really felt I nailed it. And I must, you know, I, I worked on it. I, I had to sculpt it in a sense, you know, um, but it was with, unfortunately, a version of the orchestral background that was not mixed professionally. So it's a little bit crude sounding, but yeah. the performances are much better and they're on my website. An Odysseus fantasy, you can hear my preferred version with unfortunately a less polished orchestral sound.
Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, people can check those out. I mean, I, I thought the album was great. I mean, I, I know I'm sure to your ears, and you practiced it a million times, you know, it's, but yeah, yeah it sounds great. And yeah, and I'll, I think I probably did listen a little bit to the ones on your website as well. But yeah, I listened more to the album on Spotify, and I thought it was good. Yeah, so. And you've done other, uh, you know, there's also a, a Beethoven Spring Sonata on your, on your mm-hmm. website, which is, which is great as well. So, you know, you definitely like your classical playing as well, yeah? Well, I started getting interested in that. Um, I learned uh, the Bach cello suite that everybody plays at the prelude, you know, which incidentally, I've heard some Chinese young people playing recently on chromatic, like Cy Young, who's, who's terrific. Yeah. And uh, boy, he nailed it. He did it in the original key. And I corresponded with him and told him that I had tried to play it in the original key, but the low notes on the harmonica wouldn't respond well enough. And he said, yeah, he had that problem until he bought a, a very expensive custom-made harmonica from a company called Cremona. And he said, then then those notes would speak in a way that made it possible. So I played it in C, where it's composed in G. Yeah, I learned a bunch of other Bach violin pieces and didn't record them all. Um, but then I heard the Beethoven, and I thought, wow, I just as a challenge, could I possibly learn that? Now, for a classical player like Sai or Tommy Riley, or you know, they do that all the time. Of course, learning learning Karim's piece was you know a big effort for me. There's a lot of difficult stuff in there, and so I, I felt like I was primed to learn some more classical. And I would like to revisit the uh, the Spring Sonata because I think that's a really good vehicle for harmonica. It's interesting, you know, violin does so many things well that the harmonica can't do. If I had started all over from the beginning, I probably would have chosen the violin just because it's such a universally expressive instrument and you can play any kind of world music on it almost. And it's just so versatile in terms of phrasing uh, where the harmonica is very constrained, you know, but the harmonica sounds like a harmonica. And to to the degree that people like the sound of a harmonica, it's the only thing that does that. And uh, I thought it had a certain charm with the with the Beethoven. And so that's something when I get back to New York, I'd like to uh, continue uh, I'm intrigued by these new harmonica companies that are coming out and improving the instrument. I've always tried to improve the instruments myself by doing various procedures on the harmonic yeah. to make them more airtight, et cetera, and make the reeds more responsive. But yeah. now there are some companies that are really putting serious engineering into uh, improving the instrument. So going on, uh, you know, going from classical, you, you, another great thing you did, which I'm very jealous of, you, you played on Sesame Street. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of sessions for them. There was a wonderful studio in New York where they used to record called NOLA. And that's, that's a New York program. It's based in New York, isn't it? It was. Yeah, it yeah. still is. But now I believe it's become a corporate entity and it's a very different animal than when I was involved. Yeah. I, I adore that show. And, and of course, Toots played the original theme song. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the 25th anniversary, probably in the 90s, I think it was, Toots couldn't make it and he was on tour or something. So they asked me if I would do that. And I played and, and I don't know how many years they played the version with my harmonica playing. It was a more of a salsa kind of Latin version. Kind of very cool.
that was a thrill. I probably did 10 or 20 other sessions with them for skits, you know, for the little Muppet things that they did. And it was a really, really nice group of people. And they're always wonderful arrangements. It was just, it was just really fun being associated with that. And for me, you've made it as a chromatic player because, like you said, Toots played the, the theme tune for that, which is so great. You know, to get to play on that is fantastic as a chromatic player, I think. That's a pinnacle for me, <laughs> Sesame Street. So uh, you also had what well, some instructional books with Hal Leonard, where you played uh, all the tunes for that, a jazz one and a pop standards one of them yeah i did uh hal leonard asked me if i would do a book or two and i took it very seriously and i i did the very best i could i kind of fashioned solos that would be accessible to i didn't want to make it just for beginners because there are plenty of harmonica books for beginners mm-hmm. you know with diagrams of how to play susanna and stuff like that yeah. so i thought well i didn't know of any i'm sure there are other books with more advanced playing but i, I thought i would play at a, at a high level i mean nothing that a good player couldn't play and something that that people could aspire to in any case. And I wanted it to sound good as an album, regardless of being a, uh, an instructional album. So... They gave me the uh, background tracks. I didn't record that with the band. And I, in my home studio again kind of sculpted solos that made sense and had a continuity and demonstrated certain principles and i wanted to write with each piece a few paragraphs about what i did how i conceived the solo what were the techniques involved tongue blocking etc but they didn't want that so all all your playing's notated is it in the in the books yes then i had to notate it which was oh you notated it yourself did you yeah yeah um i had to listen to them and transcribe all the solos i Transcribing is a very important thing for for students of jazz and music to do and i've done some in fact when i was 15 or 16 i had a wonderful teacher he was uh, his name was Betjeman, is who was the son of the great of the poet of the British poet Betjeman. He was a music teacher, very advanced musician, and we listened to Charlie Christian's big band arrangements. He was a guitarist who played with the Benny Goodman big band for a few years, and is considered sort of the father of electric guitar. And I transcribed every part from that that big band, you know, an eight, eighteen piece band, and well, yeah. and Charlie's solo, and then a bunch of smaller group stuff from Benny Goodman septet. So I, I really love that. I have done some transcribing in my life. It's difficult to do, but it was it was interesting trying to transcribe my own solo. And uh, I, I, yeah, you should be able to get your own. <laughs> but yeah, what did I play there? Then there was the pop one. Um, yeah, which again, apologies to Hal Leonard if you're listening, but I felt it was kind of neither fish nor fowl. It was a, the first one. They just said, "Here's a bunch of jazz tunes. Pick ones, the ones you like, and and record them, yeah. notate them, and we'll put the book out." And I was proud of that book. The second one, it was like, well, here's what we want you to do. We want you to do the Midnight Cowboy theme yeah. and the harmonica part from um, Love Me Do and Bluesette. And I'm thinking, Jesus, if somebody needs a book to play the you know, the harmonica part to uh, Love Me Do, they're never going to be able to play the blues, you know, anything on yeah. Bluesette because it's much, much harder. I mean, it's got some good stuff on it. I, 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 you know, again, I was very careful and I really studied what John Lennon did on the beginning of Love Me Do and tried to give them exactly what they wanted. I tried to imitate in the certain cases like Toots on um, Midnight Cowboy theme. 
you know, all the little nuances. I'll tell you a funny story relating to this. I did a bunch of karaoke work where, you know, like the Beach Boys used the bass harmonica and a few tunes, and they would send me a track that basically redid what the Beach Boys did because they couldn't get the original tracks, obviously, for karaoke. So they redid the, the whole rhythm section except for the vocals. And I don't know, I did about 10 of those. And at one point, a French company asked me if I would do a karaoke, do the harmonica part of Toots playing La Vie en Rose, French song, and then they modulate to the key of E major, and Toots plays this ripping solo in E major. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out how he was doing it. You know, certain runs just didn't seem to fit on the harmonica, but I soldiered through it, and I I, I managed to put a good approximation of his solo on, on the um, karaoke uh, track. It was at his funeral. I was talking to a bunch of other harmonica players who were there, and, and one of them mentioned that Toots used to play different key harmonicas. And if he came to a session where there was something that you know didn't sit nicely on a, on a C harmonica, he had no shame in pulling out a B harmonica or an E harmonica, you know, chromatic. I realized at that point, I, I went home and tried to play it on the B harmonica, and I realized, okay, that's how he did it, <laughs> you yeah. know. Because it's it's the key of F on a B harmonica, which which is much easier to to play jazz on than the key of E major, which is. I never realized Toots did that. I always thought he played a C. Yeah, so it's a, it's a good uh, insight. Yeah. In, in fact, there's some wonderful videos of him playing in the early '60s on a TV show where he does Undecided. Undecided does very quickly. It's wonderful because he's just absolute genius. But I was trying to figure that out, and I realized that he was doing that on a G harp. So, and apparently, one of his records he did on a, on a B flat harmonica, which he did with the tenor player. So he had no compunction about you know using a different key harmonica when when that would make the resulting sound better. And uh, I have seen you play, Will. In, in 2008, you came to the UK and played at NHL Festival in, in Bristol. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, you had a bit of problem in integration as well. And Roger Trowbridge was telling me the story about how you um, yeah. y- you had troubles getting through customs, but eventually got through with the help of a, uh, a UK MP. So, And you got to visit the House of Commons and House of Lords, yeah? And I'll tell you, his name was, uh, do you remember his name? Uh, very unusual name. Lembit Opic. There you go, Lembert Opic. The, the, the prologue of that story is very funny. I, after I had played in uh, Bristol and I had a wonderful time, I went back to London to go back to New York. He invited me to the House of Lords, I guess the Parliament building, to have lunch with him. And all had I known more about British politics, I would have recognized everybody around there. I was in you know very high level company at that point. And at one point, we 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 run into a guy in the hall, and uh, Lambert says, "Oh, uh, David, this is my friend uh, Will Gallison. He is a great harmonica player." One of the best, blah, 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 whatever he said. And uh, the guy said, oh, very nice to meet you. Shook my hand. And then we walked away and he, he said, well, that's the Minister of Defense. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it just struck me like, you know, what does a harmonica player, <laughs> you know, uh, have in common with the, with the Minister of Defense? I, I, I felt a little bit... Uh, because Lambert did play harmonica himself. That's right, yeah. But he yeah. sure saved my butt. They were dragging me to the airplane. I mean, I wasn't yeah. putting up a fight, 
but they were had two burly guys with their hands on my arms and forcing me to walk quickly down the the uh, hallway to the to get on the airplane back to New York. When London faxed a note saying, "Oh, we can guarantee that Mr. Gallison will not be paid for his services," and that was yeah. good enough for them, and that they, they let me into the country. Yeah, because of the work permit thing, wasn't it? And so I'm with the NHL, or now called Harmonic UK. You're appearing at this year's Chromatic uh, Virtual Weekend, and that's at the end of uh, the end of June. I put uh, again a link onto that, so yeah, people can come and check out your your workshop there as well. So that'd be cool. just want to quickly mention another song you did, which is a real fun one, is "The Pocket Full of Soul," which you play in a diatonic harmonic, and you're singing. You all about the harmonica being. A, a great instrument, a pocket full of soul. I got a pocket full of soul. And let me tell you, I'm a one man traveling band. Every place that I go, I got the music in the palm of my hand. And when I feel it coming on, I just sit back and let the spirit take control. When I play my little pocket full of soul I used to sit around and moan I never thought that I would come to anything I was here on my road And you can say that my step had lost its spring So I collected on my door And went and bought myself a shiny new tent hole And now I take up like a rocket when I play my little pocket full of soul But the piano was too heavy for me I tried to slide trombone, I tried to saxophone But they never fit my pocket very comfortably So if you're feeling kind of low And there ain't no one around to keep you company And you got no place to go And where you're at is just the last place you should be I Take a punter from a pro I did that just as I've done many songs, just for fun of it in my little home studio. And But in this particular case, I had two guest artists. Well, I got a, the drummer, um, Chris Parker was a drummer. He played in many, many famous bands and James Taylor and with a group called Stuff, which was a great funk band in the 90s. So he happened to be a friend. So he played on, I, I gave it to him and he afterwards put the drums on. And then I had Lou uh, Marini. From the Blues Brothers, right? He was in the Blues Brothers, right? And yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was a buddy too. Because I mean, I'd done some Sesame Street sessions with him, and he lived in the neighborhood. So he came by with all his saxophones and played baritone, tenor, and alto, and did this wonderful, totally off the cuff saxophone kind of classic saxophone background. And then I I called up. Lisa Fisher, who is famous for being in a movie called 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, she sang with the Rolling Stones and one of the great background singers, one of the great singers. 
and she was kind enough to come and put the background focus on there. So it, it, it was, I was in very good company with that track. I mean, it is a great fun, as I say, a great harmonica song. Oh, oh I know why I did that one, actually, because there was a, a movie that came out called Pocket Full of Soul uh, about harmonica, which apparently yeah. I'm featured in. So they, this movie came out. The director, producer of the movie asked harmonica players if they would make a theme song. And it was one of a few times in my life where somebody's given me a project, you know, write a song about this. And of course, the the, the phrase pocket full of soul is a, is a catchy, nice sounding phrase. So that's why I wrote the song in the first place. And it didn't get selected, but uh, Mad Cat Ruth wrote one, uh, which I haven't heard, but I'm sure it's very good. Uh, a question I ask each time, Will. If you had 10 minutes of practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? I think on harmonica and any instrument, really, I'm, I'm doing it now with the saxophone. Well, with harmonica, the big challenge is making things fluid, legato, and sounding like they're not chopped up. I practice arpeggios a lot, up and down uh, in, in all the 12 keys. I mean, maybe you could do in 10, no, you probably couldn't do in 10 minutes. Well, let me put it this way. If, if I've never been a very systematic practicer, so it's very nice when I have a piece of music, a jazz standard, which I need to learn, or in the case of the French, the Odysseus piece, um, something like that. It's nice to have a, a goal. If, you, if you're just sort of between things, and one thing I do, which is kind of a warm-up, uh, is I play a augmented scale, a whole tone scale, that is, starting on a C and just going up because that scale happens to be in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, right? Yeah. So it gets your your lungs moving in a, you know, in a controlled but very quick fluttering manner. So you can, so it kind of increases your speed and accuracy. So that's that's one little thing I do, for example, before I play a gig uh, sometimes. And uh, you can you can get pretty arcane on the harmonica. You know, there's some jazz harmonica players who have taken it into pretty uh, out there realms. I'm, I'm more of a melodic player. So it's important for me that I can play all these seventh chord arpeggios up and down in every key, the semblance of fluidity. So that might be something that I would I would practice, yeah. So yeah, so we'll, we'll, get, we'll get on to gear now. First of all, talking about the, the harmonicas that you play. So I have seen at one point you were endorsing Suzuki Chromatics. Is that still the case? I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. I, I met with them a few years ago at NAMM, and they wanted me to sign my image and my, my endorsement in, in a very general kind of way. And I said, well, what do I get in return? I said, you know, I would like to get one of those new bass harmonicas that you make. And they said, oh, no, no, that's, that's too expensive. You know, I was a little put off. Uh, so I, I didn't sign the thing. I had endorsed Honer for, for a while. Um, I think both Honer and Suzuki have done great work. Sometimes for recordings, I'll use a honer because, frankly, this is important. I like the sound of the honer reeds more, um, and I can hear it on a recording. But the Suzuki reeds last, I would say, 10 times as long. I've replaced hundreds of reeds in my life, and I just got tired of doing it. And uh, I decided I would play the Suzukis because they were more comfortable to play. And I wasn't afraid of breaking a reed every time I played. And maybe because I play hard, you know, some people I'm sure can play a honer their whole life, but I would practice hard and I would play hard. And if I wanted to squeeze the note, I would squeeze the note. So I, I, I started playing the Suzuki's. I mean, the Suzuki's sound fine. And if you play them through a good mic with a good EQ and a good reverb, it sounds perfectly nice. The, and the difference is that the Suzuki reeds are made of phosphor bronze and the uh, honers are made of some kind of brass alloy. And for whatever reason, they sound richer. Uh, and talking about what about embouchure, do you use on the on the chromatic? I like tongue switching, and that's a big part of my playing. And that was a a, a lot of that I was improved by my playing classical. 
it's really pretty necessary when you play the Beethoven or the Bach. And it makes certain phrases much easier to do smoothly. Of course, Toots never did that. And as far as I know, Stevie never did that. So you can play perfectly wonderful harmonica without doing that. But I felt that it really helped me in many ways and enabled me to do some things that maybe Toots wouldn't go for. But on the other hand, sometimes uh, just whistle position or spit position, whatever you want to call it, you know, pursing your lips for certain kinds of bending, for example, that you get more of a grip on the on the note when you can when you can do it that way. So I'm constantly switching between, I don't know what you call it, spit position and um, <laughs> tongue switching position. Yeah, I haven't heard it called spit position before. I like that one. I call it puckering, but I like spit okay. position. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I picked that up. but I'm like a good New York one, I think, probably. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention a couple other things uh, regarding gear. There's a Chinese company named called Wills Make. Have you seen them? No. You might look it up. Wills, like W-I-L apostrophe S, Make. And they're doing some really inventive stuff with chromatic harmonicas. Mm -hmm. uh, he's out of China. He's an engineering student, and he's an expert on machining. And they've made beautiful harmonicas, which are mostly around a 1000 bucks, But some of them have an eb ebony or wooden cover plates and some very innovative designs. I haven't actually played one, but if they if they play anywhere near as good as they look, then um, there will be something. And then there's this other company that Sa Young told me about called Cremona, which I'd like to look into as well. But those harmonicas are very expensive, yeah. more like more like three thousand bucks. But boy, uh, I mean, Sa Young is a tremendous player. Yeah, and uh, I mean, those Chinese, it's very popular in China, isn't it? The chromatic harmonica. So they're obviously very innovative <laughs> with what they do over there. Yes. Have you heard this little girl? There's a little girl who's about nine years old. Yeah, I'm forgetting her name, but she she tears it up on both the chromatic and the and the diatonic. It's really scary. This is scary, isn't it? How <laughs> they do it at that age. If you ever want to be dissuaded of doing anything in life, just go on <laughs> YouTube and find a an eight year old Chinese kid who can do it ten times better than you ever will. You know. Um, what about uh, equipment wise? Amps and microphones. What do you like to use? Yeah, I've gone through a million little little amplifiers because you know you don't want to lug a huge. Part of the charm of the harmonica is that you can put it in your pocket. So you don't want to lug a, a, a stack of marshals around. And one my, one amplifier that I found that does very nice things for the harmonica is um, ZT, makes an acoustic amplifier. Uh, it's very tiny. It's about 7 inches by 10 inches by 7 inches or smaller than that. Mm -hmm. It has a little 6-inch speaker inside. And it just does something nice to the sound. To me, sometimes it really sounds just like a louder version of the harmonica, like somehow it really rep replicates the sound very faithfully. I use that. And uh, there's another company, Scherkler, and I tried one of their amps at a NAMM show, and I thought it was really special. It's got a wooden cabinet. They've got, they've got different sizes, but this one I think had an 8 or a 10-inch speaker. And that I thought was really special as well. Uh, a microphone-wise? Well, Mike, I, I've been using um, Greg Hoyman's uh, sawed-off uh, 58, if you're familiar yeah. with that, with a volume control. And yeah. I found the volume control, I hate playing without it now because it's just really useful. I like the way that fits in my hand and it's, it's, uh, and I prefer the 58 to the 57, yeah. both for sound and, you know, the way you can hold on to the ball of the 50, of the 58. Yeah. But for recording, I use, I kind of got obsessed and bought a bunch of fairly high end mics. There's a, there's a track on, um, Got You On My Mind, which is called Flambe Montalbanese. It's a that uh, French accordion-sounding song. I always thought that was the best harmonica sound that I've gotten. Mm -hmm. 
And the, I asked the guy what microphone he used, and it was a Neumann 54, which yeah. is a rare microphone from the 60s or 50s. The Beatles used it actually on a few records, but it just smooths out the, the, it's got a nice high end, but it smooths it out in such a way that you don't get anything harsh from the harmonica. And that's a lovely uh, microphone, but I think they're, I bought it for about a thousand bucks, but now they're like four or $5,000. So good yeah. luck to anybody it's who wants to get that. crazy how much those microphones cost. I'm, I've got my little home studio and I keep looking at these really expensive microphones thinking, God, how much do these microphones cost? It's crazy, isn't it? How much they cost some of them, but. Uh, but I think there are some Low, lower end ones that are, you know, very good. And some of the mics, like a Rode, if you want to get real technical, R-O-D-E, mm. some of their mics are too high end, are too much high frequency response for me. But uh, other ones, if you replace the tubes, because these are Chinese made harmonicas, if you get better tubes, you can improve the sound of, of the microphone a lot. Final question now, Will, and thanks so much for your time. But what, just what about your future plans? Like you said, you're heading back to New York. I know you play with with Sh- uh, Sean Harkness. Are you going to go back to play with him and any other plans? Yeah, that, I think Sean is just a tremendous musician and guitarist. And we had a, good, a really good chemistry. Last I played with him was a few years ago, but uh, I would definitely like to pick that up again, maybe add a bass player and a percussionist or something like that. Yeah, and I would like to get back into playing some more classical. I don't know if, you know, if I have the chops to... Well, I, I I think if I give myself time to practice, I can be somewhat on the level of the people who are playing uh, classical. That appeals to me. Again, I like playing jazz. It's just a really tough world. You go out and you play from nine to four in the morning and you get paid 50 bucks. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a labor of love, isn't it? To be very honest, I, I, I like to play in Central Park with a bunch of very good musicians who are between jobs or sometimes they just do that. And uh, I love playing in the street. I find it gratifying and you get a big crowd and you get to play. So I get a portable amp and I play with a, a little ensemble in the park, make a little money, but it's, it's a lot of fun and, you, and you're in the open air and it's quite pleasant. Well, it's great to hear you still love to play. So thanks very much, uh, Will Geisen, for joining me today. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. And thank you for, for doing the podcast. It's great. That's it for episode 38. Thanks again for joining everybody. And thanks once again to Will Geisen to showing us and taking us through his very varied and exciting career. He's done loads of great things with the instruments. Remember, Will will be appearing at the Harmonica UK Virtual Chromatic Weekend. Uh, later on in June this year so be sure to come along and check out his workshop and gain some more insights from him so now it's over to Will to play us out with Jealous Guy Mm -hmm.